The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Father, we come before you this morning. Just, I'm grateful for how you've met us here in the worship already, the words that you've provided for us to sing that remind us of what you have done on our behalf through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray, Father, these aren't just empty words that flow from our mouth, but there's something that resonates deep within our soul. Uh, And so I'm asking that your spirit would come and meet us this morning, that you would prepare our hearts, that you would stir something up within our own hearts to respond appropriately to such great news. And I ask, Father, that you'd help me this morning uh, as I would communicate your word, as, as you would give me uh, skillful precision like a surgeon who cuts not to harm but to heal. Uh, and, and would your spirit be at work here in this gathering as we unpack your word today. Um, be near to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Like I've alluded to already, we're coming to the end of a series called Pray Like Jesus, Uh, and and really what we've been doing in this whole series is going line by line through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And and most people, when you say the Lord's Prayer, people know kind of what you're talking about. They're familiar with the words. Uh, It's been something that's sort of instilled within us, but oftentimes, even though we know the words to the prayer, we miss the heart of the prayer. We, we miss really what the, the, the prayer is trying to do in our heart when Jesus teaches his disciple to pray like this. So in a lot of ways, the Lord's Prayer can roll off the tip of our tongues with little thought. It's almost like muscle memory at this point. And what this series has been meant to do is not only show us how to pray or maybe some, blow up some of the, the things that keep us from praying, but really enter into what is Jesus after, what is he trying to do in my heart when he teaches us to pray like this. And what we've been discovering is that every line that Jesus gives us is packed with significance and meaning. Now, some lines, as we go through the Lord's Prayer, some lines provoke worship or adoration or thanksgiving. We say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're saying, God, there's nothing else like you. No one else is like you. You are set apart. You're glorious. You're mighty. You're holy. So we worship you in light of that. And then we move into prayers of um, confession, Actually, we, we tapped in last week to, to prayers of supplication. I'm getting ahead of myself here. We ask for things. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus tells us first to bring his, our, our physical needs to him and ask for those. And then today we're moving into the confession or, or asking for spiritual provisions. And I think that this verse here, verse 12, where we're sitting in today, is the best line of the prayer and also the hardest line of the prayer. Because not only are we asking for our debts to be forgiven, but we're asking for the ability to forgive others who have sinned against us. It's the best thing here because it unbinds us, it liberates us in the soul from the burdens of our sins. We find real forgiveness that just gives us joy, like we sang about today. And at the same time, nothing is harder than this. 
Nothing is harder than forgiving somebody who has seriously wronged you. But what Jesus is showing us here in this prayer is that the forgiveness that we need to receive is also tied up in the forgiveness that we need to give. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer to be forgiven, but also a prayer for us to be forgiving people. There's a forgiveness to us that allows a forgiveness to flow through us. Now, when you come to church, it's probably not a shock that you hear about forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the essential doctrines, the key pieces of the Christian faith. Without any discussion of forgiveness, there is no Christianity. And every Sunday, we come together as a church and we walk through our liturgy together. And one of, right, right in, in the crux of the liturgy is this confession of sin that we do corporately. We confess our sins together, and then in the absolution, God's forgiveness is pronounced over us through what he has done in the gospel. However, I think there's a way to approach this liturgy in sort of a robotic way, in a way that kind of mirrors uh, the way that we can oftentimes pray the Lord's Prayer, where it just flows out of our mouth without thought or without feel of what it is we're saying. And so it's easy to phone it in. It's easy to go through the motions, to mumble through the words on the screen without really owning the reality of what you're professing in your heart. Now, what I hope to do this morning is to lead us into a more honest confession, to lead us into the depth or to to look at our sin face to face and see it for what it is. But in doing so, it offers a sweetness of forgiveness. We're going to take forgiveness beyond the hallmark sentiment, and we're going to take it into a soul-stirring, worship-provoking reality. But to get there, we must first come to an agreement on a foundational truth about you and about me. And listen, I I don't even need to know your name to know that this is true about you. The thing is that, that you're a sinner. Everyone with a pulse is a sinner. That's one thing that all the human race has in common. Paul tells us this in Romans 3, when all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, this might be not like new information for you, right? In fact, it, it might seem kind of cliche, but, but this is essential to grasp onto if we're going to move forward in the discussion of, of forgiveness. Now, when the Bible talks about sin, it uses a bunch of different language to express what's going on with sin, One way to think about sin is to be dirty and defiled, and we must have to have some sort of cleansing, some purification that goes on. Or another way is through disease or infirmities. There's something wrong with us that needs to be healed. In other places, the Bible talks about sin as a trespass. Maybe that's common language that you're familiar with in learning the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And In that sense, it's this concept of crossing a line that we shouldn't cross. Or in other ways, we think of it as rebellion. We're revolting against God and the life that he wants us to live. But, but when Jesus talks about sin, specifically here in the Lord's Prayer, he uses the language of unpaid debts to explain sin. Now, nobody likes debt, right? Nobody likes to know that I have an outstanding balance that I am due to pay someone. It's, it's almost as if something hangs over our head. It's, it's, it's a form of slavery, really. 
And though in our culture, debt has become very common, in fact, most adults who are between 35 and 60 years old have anywhere from from $65,000 to $150,000 in debt on average with mortgages, student loans, or, or even worse, the credit card debt that just piles up faster than you can pay off. Debt has become familiar and common, but it's still a major setback. We might take it lightly, but in the ancient world, to the people that Jesus is talking to here in, in the Sermon on the Mount where he's giving the Lord's Prayer, debt was serious. It was punishable by time in prison. In the Roman Empire, prisons were not primarily filled with criminals, those who have broken the law. Rather, prisons were most often filled with people who owed others debt. So the people who owed debt would be imprisoned, that they, they would be allowed to go work their job, and rather than going home, they'd have to go back to these jail cells until they paid off their debt. And, and when they were in this sort of imprisonment, it, it made things really difficult for them. There was all kinds of strain placed on the families, their own, just socially, right? To know that you have an outstanding debt would kind of make you an outsider. People would think less of you. And then there's the burden that that would put on your family, Right, your whole family is working hard just to pay this debt to get you out of jail so you could be reunited with your family. And so there was some serious implications that if you had outstanding debt, that could really hamper your life. And so when Jesus uses the word debt in the Lord's Prayer, it's meant to invoke a serious offense. It's not something to take lightly. And it's a serious offense, and attached to it is a serious punishment. This is a debt that is greater or more profound or inescapable than a a debt of dollars and cents. It's a debt that we owe God, a cosmic debt. You might be wondering, like, what, what is it exactly that I owe God? Well, J.I. Packer frames it up nicely for us, and he says this, Jesus' thought is that we owe God total Loyalty, zealous love for God and mankind all day and every day on the pattern of Jesus' own. And our sin is basically a failure to pay. So he's saying that every day that we live, we owe God complete and total loyalty to live life the way he tells us, to live a generous life, to live a heart of, of posture, of goodwill and kindness. And every second we fail to love God wholeheartedly with our head, with our heart, with our hands, every second, every chance that we miss the opportunity to love others accumulates the debt that we owe God. Now I use the word cosmic debt here because I think it conveys two things. Cosmic in the sense that it's ultimately our sin is against God. But secondly, in the sense that our sin is vast. And to understand how big, how vast our debt is, we must understand that there are two general categories for sin. There are the sins of commission, the things that we do that we know are evil, right? Stealing, gossiping, having an affair, or lusting after someone, coveting other people's things. 
These are sins of commission, things that we've acted on to sin in specific ways. And, and when we think about sin, most often these are the things that, that stand out to us. They're, they're pretty apparent because you look at your life and you think, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have done that. Now, these sins of commission, they, they can be intentional or they can be uh, of ignorance. Anytime that we operate outside of God's command, out of, outside of his will for our lives, we commit sins of commission. But the second category of sin is the sins of omission. It's by leaving things undone which should have been done. It's to live selfishly rather than generously toward God and others. If God gives us an opportunity to step in and be generous, and instead we say, you know what, no thank you. To be cold and standoffish instead of being hospitable. Or if we have an opportunity to share the gospel or to love on someone in a really tangible way, and we just say, you know what, no, I think I'm going to pass on this. See, these are sins that are much more subtle it's not that we've done something wrong. It's that we've failed to step into good works that God has prepared for us to do. And what we have to see about these sins of omission, these are the sins that we most commonly, most often commit. A lot of times it's not even to our knowledge. And in committing these sins of omission, leaving things undone, we are accumulating. We're just racking up this cosmic debt. And when we consider both sins of commission and sins of omission, we can start to see, we can start to wrap our minds around how big this debt is that we owe God. Now, if we want to honestly pray the Lord's Prayer, like to, to mean it, to, to have like a real uh, honest profession, to have a real honest commitment to the words that are coming out of our mouth, we must first come to grips with the reality of what we owe God. We have to be willing to closely examine our lives and detect our day-to-day -day shortcomings, to see where we've missed the mark, to see where we've misstepped. And in doing so, it's not a form of self-deprecation. It's not, it's not a way of just belittling ourselves little, 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 little. But, but it is a way that God cultivates humility within our own hearts to help us see ourselves for who we are. And in, in giving us this humility, it helps us fight against the pride that keeps God at an arm's length away from us. Now, I can think of three non-humble responses that people commonly have to this foundational truth of being a sinner. Like, not, not everybody wants to cuddle up to this idea of, like, yeah, I, I'm a sinner. Maybe, maybe we can ascribe to it in theory. You know, oh, yeah, of course, I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. But when we really get into the nitty-gritty, we, we want to push back on it. And I think there's three ways that our pride can lead us into response that does not ultimately deliver us to forgiveness. It keeps us in unforgiveness. And I think the first way to respond to this in a prideful way is to be apathetic to what God has told us about the debts that we owe him. It's to hear that, that God is this holy God, that he's owed your whole life and devotion, and you sort of shrug it off like, oh, so what? 
Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. What difference does it make if I pay off my debts to God or not? Now let me, let me just tell you that the debt that we owe God is unlike financial debt that we have in this life, right? You die, your debt, for the most part, dies with you. Right? It gets forgiven, passed off, it's done with. Nobody's got to worry it, nobody's got to absorb it. But the debt that we owe God doesn't vanish when we die. We're still responsible for it. That, that this, this debt that we owe God must be paid back. And if you choose to deny the debt that you owe God, if, if you turn a blind eye to this debt, it's still going to catch up with you. And, and it ca- catches up with you in the form of God's wrath being set against you. Romans 2 tells us, that our hard hearts are what keeps us from realizing the debt that we have. And when we are uh, embedded or instilled in our hardness of heart, what we're doing is we're storing up wrath against us for the day when God comes back to settle his accounts. And so in being apathetic to this reality, it's not going to be of any benefit to you. It's not going to be like, oh, it, it will just move past that and it's on to the next thing. To be apathetic to this reality of your debt means that you're only bolstering the wrath of God, which you must face yourself on the day of judgment. Now, if, if the eternal ramifications for your unsettled debt with God have shaken you out of your apathy, which I, only God can do that. Only God can create this, this unsettledness of the sin or the debt that I carry against God. And if God has graciously moved in a way that said, hey, this is something I need to perk up. My, I need to pay attention to what's going on here. Then know that God has provided a way out for you so that you do not have to face that wrath. You do not have to pay back the debt that you owe yourself. That God has sent his son Jesus to settle your account. That Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. See, unlike you, Jesus was completely concerned about giving God what he was owed, he wasn't apathetic to any degree. And Jesus lived a life that pleased God, that paid him all that he was due. And, and because Jesus lived this life, he, was, he deserved to have all blessing and honor dis, uh, uh, bestowed upon him. But instead of taking that reward for himself, what Jesus did, he gave himself up for you. He saw the debt that you had to pay. He saw that you were incapable of delivering. And he said, I'm gonna pay it in full. I'm gonna, I'm gonna face that wrath for you. And so Jesus was nailed to the cross and he paid every bit of your cosmic death, giving you freedom, liberty from this debt that you owe, unshackled you, set you free. And this is available to you only by faith. You can't can't work to get God in your favor. Jesus doesn't owe you anything. This is a free gift that we receive by faith. So the gospel wakes us up from our apathy. Now the second way that I think we can respond to this truth of us being sinners is to just reject it. Maybe it's in part, maybe it's completely say, you know what, I am not that bad. 
This is where we can kind of ascribe to this in theory and say, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner, but really my sin isn't that bad. My debt isn't that great. I'm, I'm actually a relatively good person. I was reminded of this a couple years ago. A, a politician was asked about the last time uh, he asked for forgiveness. He said, never, I, I don't need to be forgiven because I haven't done anything wrong. I think this is, this is one of the common ways that we reject the reality of our sinfulness. I don't need it. Now listen, when, when we think of this, when we think about people rejecting the reality of our sinfulness, most often these are not our atheist friends. I, th I don't think atheists have any problem saying, you know, if there were a God and if you were to have a standard, it's pretty clear that I have violated his standards. Our atheist friends are not saying this. They're not rejecting this truth of being sinners. The people who are rejecting this truth about being a sinner are the religious people. The people who are self-righteous, the people who have a lot of confidence in their own abilities. And they say, you know what? I'm capable of doing this on my own. That I'm not that bad. I think the people who are rejecting this reality of being sinners, of, of owning this, this fundamental truth about ourselves, these are the people who, who minimize sin and say, you know what? Sin, you know, it's, sin's really not that big of a deal. Right? Why, why does it matter if I live the way God wants me to live? So you either downplay sin or you drastically underestimate what you owe God. You reduce what you owe God into, I show up to church on Sundays, I bring some food, I help people out, you know, at missional community. You sort of reduce the standard to, to like there's this secular or what's the sacred part of my life, right, that's, that's church things. And then there's this secular part of my life where I can do what I want. See, but God demands that every part of our life, there is no division of sacred and secular, that every part of our life be lived in honor and in loyalty to him. Now, for these people who reject the reality of sinfulness, the cross that Jesus went to tells us that our sin really is a big deal. It tells us that God's standards are much higher than what we think. And God is serious about our sin. Spirituality is not a joke or some sort of formality. A holy God cannot overlook the flimsiness of your self-righteousness. And if you're too proud to realize your need, you're too proud to realize the, the scope, the vastness of your cosmic death, depth, then you will only keep yourself from grasping true forgiveness. See, by rejecting sinful nature, we reject the forgiveness that's made available to us. And I think there's a third way. And I think the third way is to be consumed by the reality of your sin. Just to be overwhelmed. You, you're so aware of the debt that you owe God. It, it's, it's actually crippling. That your conscience is always troubled. You feel overwhelmed by the sin that you've done and the sin that you've left undone. You look at your life and say, there's no way that I could possibly please God. So no matter what you do, no matter how much you pray, you always feel like God can't forgive you. In fact, sermons like this, 
right, where I'm pushing on the reality of our sinfulness can really become a catastrophic blow to your outlook on, on life. Right? It just sort of accentuates the issue and it causes you to move into despair. Now, I want to be sensitive to, to people who have this sort of conscience. I, I, I don't want to cripple you for the sake of crippling. I, I want to, to mirror God and like how he, he touched Jacob's hip when he, Jacob was wrestling with God in the book of Genesis. That they wrestled all night long and God came and he, he touched Jacob's hip and he knocked it out of socket. And from that point on, Jacob walked with the lip. I don't want to push you to despair, but I do want to show you that I think that what's motivating this mentality, like really at the core of what's going on here is a twisted sense of pride. Not in a sense of look at me, look at how good I am, right, where you're puffed up with self-righteousness, but it's the dark side of pride that says, oh, there's no way. There's no way that I could possibly be forgiven. It moves you into self-loathing because I ought to be able to do something. I ought to be able to contribute, but I can't get it right. And so just l- l- let, me, let me apply some pressure here in order to relieve it, right? It's like a belt that's on too tight, right? In order to get the belt off, you have to put a little bit of pressure, pull on that belt, and then you get the little, you know what I'm talking about? Get the clip out, and then it relieves the pressure. That's, that's what has to happen here. To get out from under your cosmic debt isn't something you can do, right? You don't have the resources to move yourself out of that. You don't have the resources to change your your mindset, but Jesus does, that he can carry the load. He can absorb the debt for you. And if this is your conscience, if you're always troubled by the guilt, then your job is not to take that on yourself. Your job is to offload that onto Jesus. That's what he came to die for. This is what responding in humility to our sinful nature looks like. It's to acknowledge the reality of the debt. To realize that we have no means within our, our, our own selves to pay it off, right? It's, it's to realize that we are spiritually bankrupt. This is what it looks like for us to pray, forgive us our debts honestly. Right? We're, not, we're not asking God to give us an extension. We're not asking that he pardon just a little bit and we can work the other part off. We're asking that he would completely abolish the entire sum of our debt. Because it's a debt that we cannot pay ourselves. And when we go to God and honestly ask for forgiveness, he stands ready not to condemn I think that's, that's our, our mentality with God. We see God as this big bully up in the sky that he's got this rule of list that we ought to follow. And so when we come to God with our list of sins and the things that we've fallen short in, we're just expecting to get our hands slapped. Try better, do better, work harder. But that's not the response that God, the God 
the God who teaches us to pray, our Father. That's not the response our Heavenly Father has toward us. He stands ready to pardon our debts. Every single one of them. From, from the smallest sin that seems benign to us to the biggest life-changing life. I, I, there's a sort of uh, oppression that some of our sins can, can just make, like baggage, that the sin makes us carry around through our life. And, and Jesus says, hey, you, you give that to me. I'll take it. I'll, I'll let it go. I will pay the price for those sins. God stands ready to pardon our debt where he transfers our negative balance over to Jesus. And Jesus absorbs the entire cost himself, so much so that there's no record against us. In fact, Psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west, our transgressions, our debt are removed from us. In Isaiah 1, though our sin was like scarlet, we sang this today, though our sin was like scarlet, we've been washed white as snow. And even in in the absolution today, we were told that in Colossians 2, that he canceled our record of debt that stood against us by nailing them to the cross. And this is a once and for all payment. See, Jesus went to the cross for all sins of all humanity. And we know, I mean, you think that that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big ledger, right? If you just think of your own sin, what Jesus is going to the cross to pay for, then just like multiply that. I don't know how many people have been on the earth throughout eternity, but it's a big number. Multiply it times whatever trillion. Jesus paid for it all. And we know that God accepted payment because on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. Right? If it wouldn't have been satisfying to God to pay off all of our debt, Jesus would have remained in the grave. But God forgave us. Now, what would, what would compel God to forgive people like you and me? Why would God, God is not obligated to forgiveness. Why would God do this? Now, the answer to this lies in verse 9 of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. See, this is the action of a loving Heavenly Father. Now listen, I've got a four-year-old, and he makes a lot of really dumb mistakes. But I love that kid. And every time he comes to me and he does something that's just stupid, and I won't, I won't call him stupid. Don't get the wrong idea. I'm not, he's not stupid. But he's four years old, so he makes dumb mistakes. But I feel this, this pull in my heart. I realize the sin that he committed. I realize that this is kind of an ugly thing. And I don't want to just like sweep it under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist. But I'm compelled out of love for him to forgive what he's done to hurt me or to hurt his mom or somebody else. See, it is the love of God that compels him to forgive us our sins because he is our heavenly father. As we pray the Lord's Prayer together, do we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those uh, who hold debts against us. Praying the Lord's Prayer serves as a daily reminder of the gospel. See, not, not only that we are liberated from our debt, right, that, that we have a zero-sum balance now, but it actually gets better than that. 
Colossians 1 says that, that we, because of the gospel, we are, we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. There's two really important things that, that Paul tells us here in this. He's saying, first of all, instead of racking up debt and having this massive uh, uh, debt that we carry around, and, and the debt is wiped away, but in place of the debt, Jesus gives us a robust inheritance. It's not just a zero balance. All things are ours. He, he gives us an inheritance. And the second thing he shows us is that, that no longer are we identified only as sinners, but as saints. That there, there's a, a transition. There, there's a change in identity. Now, people think of saints, and it's like saints is, has historically been used for uh, those who are spiritually elite. And in the Catholic Church, they've sort of set people as saints uh, but the way the Bible talks about saints is not some sort of spiritual elite nature that someone attains. To be a saint is to embrace Jesus by faith, to receive forgiveness, so that in this sense that all who believe in Jesus are called saints. There's this transition of identity. Now, this does not mean that we stop sinning, that when we come and we put our faith in Jesus that we're done sinning for the rest of life. That, that could not be further from the truth. But there is this identity change that happens where we go from being fundamentally sinners to being saints who sin. And as we grow in our sainthood, as our faith develops, there, the, the appetite for our sin gradually dies and it gives way and, and we start to want to live in order to give God what he's owed. See, the gospel has great news for us. This is, this is sweet. This is actually the most pressing need that we have for our debt to be dealt with. It gives us a freedom of conscience. It gives us the removal of guilt. It, it, it promotes in us a joy of salvation. I don't know if you've ever had somebody step in. If you had a debt, if you had an outstanding balance, and, and you're looking at it as like, there's no way I can pay this, and you step in, you step in or somebody else steps into that for you. They're the one, they cut the check. How do you respond to that? It's the joy that flows out of us. Now, the gospel deals with this vertical aspect of sin, that, that first of all, my sin is primarily against God. But it also deals with this horizontal deal we got going on, where sin affects others. See, we are sinners who sin against God and other people. Now, the natural flow, if, if we're confessing our sins to God, if we're repenting of our sin to God, is to do likewise to those who we've sinned against. It's to take ownership of the wounds of the hurt that we've uh, inflicted on people. It's to make restitutions, not to earn forgiveness, but because ultimately we know that God has forgiven us of every single debt that we owe. It's like the story of Zacchaeus. When, when Jesus was out on his way and Zacchaeus was hanging out in a tree and, and pe people did not like Zacchaeus. He, he was a tax collector. He kept on basically robbing people and stealing their money. And Jesus comes over and spends time with him. And Zacchaeus has this profound encounter of Jesus. 
And he realizes that, that Jesus is going to wipe away all of his debt. And, and then he responds to that by going and by making restitution to everybody else he's wronged. See, but we not only sin against people, we are also victims of being sinned against. See, that's the other thing that I know about you even before I know, you know your name. You're, you're both a sinner and you're also a sufferer. If you live in community with people, whether it be that your family or your missional community family, you know that this is real, that, that you will inevitably be hurt. Your feelings will get hurt whether intentionally or unintentionally. You'll suffer wounds at the hands of somebody else. Now, they'll, they'll probably say something to do something that hurts you, and, and when that happens, what's likely to happen in your own heart is to hold that grudge against them, or at least keep them at arm's length. There's a sense where relationships are fractured. And some people say, this is why I don't get close to people, because I know I'm going to get hurt. But if you, if you step out of relationship because you're going to get hurt, you're going to miss out on one of God's greatest gifts and graces to the church. Because the grace of God that forgives you also supplies the forgiveness that you need to forgive others. See, that's in the Lord's Prayer, that's what we're praying for. Forgive us as we forgive others. There's a sense of I'm tapping into the grace that God gives me for my sins so that I can convey that forgiveness to somebody else. And when you think about it, this is what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes down from heaven to earth. Now, Jesus gives us a parable of this um, later on in Matthew's gospel. He tells a, gives a parable of the unforgiving servant. I'm just going to read through it here real quick. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And that's a, quite a sum. That's like 20 years worth of, of labor. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, so the servant, he fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So there's this incredible experience that this servant has where, where he experienced a pardon that, that his whole balance has been forgiven. And then verse 28 goes on and says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is so small in comparison to his outstanding balance against the king. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, right? Sound familiar? Have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master, the, the, the one who's originally pardoned this, this debt, he summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, 
not you had have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, the king goes and he forgives his servant this huge debt. But instead of this servant responding with gratitude and joy and extending forgiveness to his fellow servant, he goes and he demands to have his payment. Now, what a sin against the king. The king is greatly displeased with this. He, he actually goes and he, he revokes that person's forgiveness. He says, you know what? You actually owe me anyway. That debt that I for, forgave you of, well, it's back on you now. Pay up. See, what's so troubling about this prayer, the Lord's Prayer here, when we say, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, is, is what's attached to the end of it in, in verse 14. Where Jesus says, uh, this is kind of like the follow-up to him teaching the prayer. This is the first thing that Jesus unpacks in the prayer for his disciples. He says in verse 14 of Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, Jesus is showing us Forgiving others is a condition of receiving our own forgiveness. See, if we are unwilling to forgive other people, then it's very likely that we don't understand our forgiveness at all. Thomas Watson, his old, old Puritan, he said, we need not to climb up to heaven to see whether our sin are forgiven, but only to look into our heart. Are we forgiving spirits? See, this is honestly, I think this is why the Lord's Prayer is so hard to pray. To, to lay hold of the forgiveness means that there's gonna be forgiveness flowing out of us. And honestly, forgiveness doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally for us. Very few people have a disposition to be naturally forgiving. In fact, most of us would rather hold on to these grudges, especially if we've been deeply and seriously hurt. There's a sense where forgiveness seems impossible. Now, when I talk about forgiveness and forgiving others, I'm not saying that you go be buddy-buddy with somebody who's abused you. You need to exercise wisdom nor am I saying that, that forgiveness is brushing things off and just like, yeah, everything's fine, whatever. To, to, to move toward forgiveness allows us to have hurt and anger. And, and forgiveness doesn't just make things naturally better, like it's just gonna go back to the way that it is. There's still going to be consequences attached to that depending on the circumstances. But forgiveness, the forgiveness that we receive, the forgiveness to us, is meant to flow through us. See, the type of forgiveness that Jesus wants to offer others isn't lip service. It's from the heart. It's true forgiveness. And to really lay hold of true forgiveness means that 
as resentment surfaces that we give that over to forgiveness. Peter asked Jesus, how often do I have to forgive my brother who sinned against me? Is it seven times? And Jesus says, no, no, no. 77 times. Now, that's not a literal number, but what he's saying here is every time it pops up, every time it comes to the surface, it's your duty out of your own forgiveness to respond forgivingly to that person, to relinquish them of their debts against you. Now, when you think about it, some of the most powerful testimonies of how the gospel has been at work come from stories of forgiveness. I was just thinking of Years ago, when there was the, the shooting in the church, the, uh, was it Charleston? Right? A white kid comes in, sitting in a Bible study, and he shoots up, I think, seven, nine people. And the way that those people responded was not to be angry and shake the fist, though there was deep hurt and sorrow. Their hearts moved toward him in forgiveness. Now, this, this kid's on death row. Like there, There's legal consequences that he has to face. But in the eyes of the people that he is wounded and he is hurt, they have been forgiving him. Now, I think that's powerful. In fact, the only way that they can do that is because of the fact that they've been forgiven in the gospel. Forgiving other people isn't a way for us to earn our own forgiveness. It's an evidence that we have been forgiven. It's an outward, or it's an overflow. It's a reaction to the forgiveness that we first receive in Christ. And if grudges are being held in our relationships, then we probably aren't really grasping the gospel to its fullest. There's things that we don't understand. It's likely that we are making our sin small while maximizing other people's sin. It's what Jesus talked about with the, the speck uh, in your neighbor's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye. As we forgive like we've been forgiven, right? when, when, we're, when we're absorbing the debt, we don't have to shoulder this suffering on our own. In fact, nobody knows what it's like to forgive an enormous debt. Nobody knows what it's like to shoulder the debt of somebody else more than Jesus. And God meets us in our suffering. Jesus is right beside us, that he gives us his spirit to comfort us when we are hurting and when there is pain. That he's working to reconcile, to heal, to bind up our wounds. And so we can take our hurt to Jesus and know that, that through his gospel, not only is he forgiving us of our sin, he's, he's binding up our wounds. He's making us whole. And this morning as we come to the Lord's table, what we see, what, what we're doing is remembering two things. One, that Jesus has paid the debt for our sin. That his body was broken, his blood was shed so ours wouldn't have to be. And the other thing that he's communicating to us is that he knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus was called the suffering servant. And so as we as Christians are forgiving people, Jesus knows what it takes to forgive them. And he supplies all of your needs in his body and his blood. In fact, it's the spirit of God that's working in us to forgive others. So today, as you come to the Lord's table, let me urge you to examine your heart. 
What, what is it that you need to be forgiven of? What are, what are the sins maybe that you're reluctant of confessing and moving in repentance of? Who do you need to forgive? Who are the people in your life that you feel they owe you something? And as you come, as you process that, just come with open hands. Let go of your grudges. Open up those hands so that you can receive the body and the blood of Christ that he offers so freely to remind us that we've been forgiven. Father, we thank you for your mercy upon us that we do not, we do not deserve our forgiveness at all. In fact, justice says that our debt would follow us for the rest of eternity, but your grace is sufficient that you've overcome. There's no, there's no debt greater than your grace. And so you've offered us pardon of sin. I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts for this forgiveness. Maybe, maybe your spirit's prompting us for something to repent of, to take to you, to, to, to un, unbind our conscience, to, to free us from our guilt. I pray that your spirit would work in that way. And, and as we, we do, Father, would you put in our hands your mercy, your body, your blood broken for us, your blood shed so that we could be whole. So as sinners, we could be justified and made saints. As sufferers, we could be healed of our wounds. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.